From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, removing Decimase membrane, removing trabecular meshwork at AAO 2019. The Repositil actually has effects on the cytoskeleton. It, exactly how it facilitates migration, I'm not sure that we know. First this. There were technical problems in the recording of the audio for these interviews, and I apologize for the sound quality. However, I feel that the material presented is valuable, and I didn't want to exclude it just because of poor sound. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2019 annual meeting of the American Academy of Ophthalmology in San Francisco. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on iWorld's YouTube channel at iWorldTV.com. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Catherine Colby on primary decimase stripping and from Cyril Doriraj on trabeculectomy. I'm here with my dear friend, Kathy Colby, long time for, I'm not going to say how long because I, I don't want to date either either one of us, but it's, it's implausibly long. Uh, we're going to be talking about a, a you know, a, an entire surgery in 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 which you you've been the the the, the spirit and continue to be, and that is a primary decimase stripping, and um, I if you don't mind, I I'd, I'd like you to just very briefly recap uh, what it is, and then the the exciting role that uh, rock uh, in, inhibitors uh, play as an adjunct. Great. Hi, Josh. It's always fun to be here with you. Uh, so it, it's been a great uh, academy meeting. There's a lot of interest in decimase stripping, which is basically a very simple technique where for Fuchs dystrophy patients with central corneal gote, where we simply remove the gote, allowing the healthier peripheral endothelial cells to migrate, uh, repopulate the central cornea, and detrochest the cornea. And the the um, the salient word in that that entire uh, disquisition was migrate. So, what role does rock have with migration? So, uh, yeah, about three ago, three years ago. Right around the time of the meeting in October of 2016, Greg Maloney's colleague in Australia um, emailed me very excitedly that he had been able to rescue two decimate stripping only patients who were not clearing with a topical uh, rock inhibitor, Repositil. Um, and the Repositil actually has effects on the cytoskeleton. Um, it, exactly how it facilitates migration, I'm not sure that we know. Uh, but the addition of the ROC inhibitor to the decimate stripping appears to make it heal more quickly, uh, increase the final cell count, um, and improve the success rate overall. So we in increase the, the final cell count meaning the these these central endothelial cell count it's not it's not that it's causing well no let me not let me say this in the form of a question is it causing an increase in the overall population of of endothelial cells so we don't know the answer to that and so why don't we know the answer because there's only one center 
of the cornea where there's 360 degrees of periphery. So it's very hard to image the same area of the peripheral endothelium and make sure you're in the same exact area every time. Interesting work from uh, Marion Maxi in Chicago showed that when she did a randomized clinical trial and used topical reposidil, that the peripheral endothelial cell counts did not decrease, whereas they did when she just did decimate stripping without the ROC inhibitor. So that would kind of argue that potentially there is some cell division, but we don't really know. So, and, and, and just for people that have heard of it, the Reposidil is uh, a, a BID Japanese medication? Yes. Uh, it's approved in Japan for use uh, for glaucoma, and it is given twice daily for glaucoma. So uh, tell, me, um, tell me where things have, have gone from, from there with respect to rock and the number of patients that have been done uh, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. You know, so it's really been fun to watch. You know, sometimes when you put out a novel idea, novel technique, there's some initial skepticism. Oh, it wasn't the case with yours. I mean, people, <laughs> people just cheered from the start, right? No, you, yeah. you had no pushback at all. No, no, no. Uh, so there were skeptics, understandably. I mean, I think there were skeptics when Garrett Mellis started, you know, 15, 20 years ago, introducing various forms of EK. Um, but uh, over the years, the data actually stand for themselves and, and really to date at this meeting, um, either published or presented, we're now up to 230 cases of decimate stripping supplemented with topical repositil. And the results are quite good from some of the um, most recent data failure rates of six or seven percent. And uh, it does appear like the central endothelial cell count is higher with repositil. Now, uh, responses of the patients to to this surgery and to cornea surgeries generally is, you know, pretty protean and it's a pretty wide spectrum. How do you, are, are there any sort of head-to-head -head trials uh, with patients receiving rock or or not uh, to decide whether it is it should be mainline adjunct therapy for this surgery. Well, so the MaxI study that I mentioned was published in Cornea. Um, uh, I believe it was earlier this year, and it, that was a small investigator-initiated study. I think of a dozen patients in each arm, but it was randomized and masked, and it did show quicker recovery and a higher final central cell count. Um, you know, but but we really too prove that something works, you have to generate level one evidence. So uh, we're actually in the process of doing a placebo-controlled, randomized, multi-center, masked trial um, sponsored by COA, who is the manufacturer of Repositil. So I wanted to ask you that too. So th this is a, a medication that's uh, not available in the U.S., is, is that right? It's not FDA not FDA approved in the United States, but we live in the wonderful world of the internet and patients can get it online. Okay, well, this, I mean, that, that's, the, now one, one question that, that, that some people I'm sure are going to want to ask is, there um, is an FDA approved uh, QD uh, rock, rock inhibitor in the US, is, is that substitutable for this? Do we I, know that? I have no personal experience with um, Natarsidil, which is the one that's approved in the United States for glaucoma. Um, you know, we 
we were early on in our experience in corneal endothelial dysfunction with rock inhibition, and there's various forms of the uh, rokinase. And so the pharmacokinetics of riposidil and natarsidil are not identical. So the answer is, I don't know the answer to that, and I have no personal experience. Uh, I do imagine that there are people in the United States trying natarsidil uh, because it is approved in the US. And we do use it at a higher dose. So riposidil is approved uh, in Japan for BID, and generally people are giving it QID for endothelial rejuvenation. Uh, really, really, mm. really interesting. Just one, one last really, really basic question, then, then I promise I will, I will let you out of this room, uh, which, which is um, in the event that DSO fails, that, that decimase stripping uh, fails, does it preclude um, a subsequent endothelial graft? It doesn't, and we, we published that in 2017. My, my colleague Peter Veldman was the senior author. It was published in Cornea. The, three people in our original series did, failed to clear and had uneventful DMAC, and in, in my most recent cases, we've had a handful, and they also have uneventful DMAC. So it doesn't really um, preclude a successful endothelial keratoplasty, and basically what you, you're left with is you know a couple of months of corneal edema if it doesn't work. Yeah, if it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, this is wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, Kathy, I'm always happy that you, that, 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 that you choose to share this with me because it's interesting. It's really, really neat, and it's really uh, moving the needle, as the cool kids say. Um, I, I want to thank you uh, chiefly for being so very generous with your time with us today. Well, maybe I can ask you to put a plug in for the upcoming World Cornea Congress, which is in Boston next year. Uh, it's uh, the premier cornea meeting. It only happens once every five years. It'll be in Boston in May. It's a nice time to visit Boston. Yeah, uh, I, I am I am very much uh, looking forward to it, and our, our connection stems from Boston. Yes. <laughs> um, wonderful. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I'm here with Cyril Doriraj. Cyril, I uh, do MIGs. I do a lot of MIGs. I love doing MIGs. It's fine. In fact, I, I may even like that part of the surgery more than the cataract part of the surgery, but that'll just be our little secret. Um, I, I, I have uh, colleagues, I have a few colleagues who are cataract surgeons who don't do MIGs, and you know who you are. I'm not going <laughs> to name you. Um, and I tell them, you know, I don't think that it's fair to be a cataract surgeon and not offer MIGs to patients who are coming in with, you know, stable, uh, mild to moderate glaucoma on medications. I mean, who wouldn't, would want it. And one of the points that, that they, that they make is, look, there, there, there's, there's documentation of IOP reduction, uh, with just cataract surgery. How do I know that MIGs is adding anything? Um, you're, you're going to answer that question for me today, sir, I'm sure, because you, you, have, you have studied this. How, is, is, uh, is trabeculotomy, is, is goniotomy doing anything? So the, the first question is, uh, you kind of like I said, cataract and glaucoma coexist. And you know, almost like 4 million cataracts are done in the United States, and out of which 25 to 30% of them, uh, there is a coexistence of cataract and glaucoma, and it is uh, mild to moderate. And uh, if you look at the previous literature, uh, like like from 25 to 30 years back, whenever you do any kind of procedures on patients who have glaucoma, even as simple as cataract surgery, the glaucoma progresses. Patients 
you know, start losing vision, their pressures doesn't come under control. So th that's the basic idea. The basic idea is to see whenever you do an intervention and there is a possibility if you are doing a cataract surgery on patients who already have glaucoma, if you can keep that glaucoma under control, that's the main thing. So all these new procedures that's been coming in since last 15 years, uh, you know, has been offered for patients who have coexistence of cataract and glaucoma. And trabeculectomy is one of them. We don't need complex convoluted procedures, especially if you are targeting cataract surgeons to perform something. So at the same time, because cataract is a major thing for patients. When they undergo cataract surgery, they expect something, a better vision immediately next day. So in those patients, you want something which is very simple and also like safer. At the same time, their quality of life should be improved. So invariably, whenever a cataract surgery is done on a patient, their quality of life is improved. But on the other hand, if a patient has cataract and glaucoma, if the glaucoma progresses, their quality of life is going to get worse. So this is the basic idea of like introducing all these new procedures where patients who have cataract and glaucoma together, we can do something for them so that the glaucoma doesn't progress and their quality of life or even medication use doesn't get affected. Coming to the next part, the trabeculotomy. It's something very similar to what uh, in 1930s, Dr. Barkhan introduced. It's like a, based on goniotomy. Goniotomy where it's typically done in primary congenital glaucoma patients where you go incise something, a, a membrane that's typically seen that's known as a Barkhan membrane or anything like that. It's an incisional trabeculotomy or goniotomy. But if you see uh, literature coming from 1970s after, if you do it in adult glaucoma patients who have uh, glaucoma, Unfortunately, there is a fibrosis of this. You make an incision, there is fibrosis, and there is scarring that happens on the surgery phase. So this is where the newer advance in uh, innovation or the surgical innovation in MIGS, that's where the KDB uh, that's came into picture. The, the Kahook dual blade. Kahook I mean, just dual people blade. don't know what KDB stands yeah. for. Yeah. So it, has, it can do, perform uh, ab internal excisional goniotomy. It's not incisional. That's, that was what was done before. This is something different where you excise the trabecular meshwork. The difference is, you know, we all know almost like 60 to 70 percent of the time, like when there is a glaucoma, there is a pathology that's happening in the trabecular meshwork. There is some sort of like a fibrillar material that gets deposited in the trabecular meshwork and that kind of impedes or blocks the fluid that goes from the anterior chamber into the supra, you know, epistolar venous system or anything. But this idea of doing uh, excisional goniotomy or ab trabeculectomy is basically taking out this part of trabecular meshwork and then giving access from anterior chamber to, uh, for the fluid to flow outside easily. So this is why patients who have coexistence of cataract and glaucoma together and if you look at the ratio for almost like 25% of patients who undergo uh, cataract surgery in the United States, they will be benefited from doing some sort of procedures like this. So how, how do you, so I want to hear about your, your study, because I, I think it's going to answer my, my question. In this sort of mixed surgical context in which you're doing cataract surgery and you're doing uh, mixed surgery uh, trabeculectomy, uh, tra well, you're, 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 you're excising TM. Um, how, 
you know how much of the pressure reduction you can attribute to one of those components of the surgery as opposed to the others. So tell me about your study. So you kind of asked two things. One is, uh, can you compare? That's uh, like how much is compared. This, this study is basically not a comparison. It's basically to look at how this study performs over time. Anything that we do, especially as we surgeons when we operate, we look into the first thing is the safety. Immediately when we are operating, we want to see if it's safe and over time, efficacy. Our goal was to see if the glaucoma would be stable over time. Uh, and then the next thing is the pressure reduction. Will it be stable or if the patient starts progressing over time? So the study actually looked into prospectively, looked into uh, patients who underwent cataract and KDB goniotomy over three years and, and kind of like monitored what happens immediately if there's any complications or side effects, whatever. And then over time, intraocular pressure and then medication reduction was evaluated. So if you, if you see the uh, study that's, uh, that's supposed to that's been presented at the academy this year, almost, uh, you know, 71% of patients had a reduction of 31% of intraocular pressure, whatever the baseline is. So these were all treated patients, patients who had mild to moderate glaucoma, who had clinically significant cataracts who underwent surgery. Their pressures were around 18 to 20, something like that. And then when they underwent cataract surgery, when the goniotomy was done with, on them, almost 85% of them were off medications. And then over three years, the pressures maintained. For three years, almost 71% maintained their pressures. So they were stable. And also, like, we kind of looked into uh, visual fields and OCT, structural and functional monitoring, just to see if they're stable. But as you know, any surgery that we do, any surgery that we do, even uh, a trabeclectomy or glaucoma drainage device, which is considered one of the best surgeries for glaucoma, that's like basically we are trying to reduce the intraocular pressure in these patients. You know, they, you know they, over time, the disease itself progresses. We look at the literature, the disease itself progresses. So we wanted to look into this new procedures that's coming in. There's not enough data that's there. There is published six months data and then one year data. This is almost like more than three years of data that's been coming out of here. So that is the basic idea. So has it, I mean, I don't know what your, your practice pattern was before this study, but have the findings of this study changed the way that you manage patients? It all comes down to our patient's quality of life. So the, that's what it comes to. Our practice depends on, like it's, I started doing trabeclectomy 20, 22 years. It's not, it's it's one of, it's a procedure. It's not, it's not a complicated procedure, but you can do it, but it's a work that's done after the surgery also. It's more, uh, patients have to come for follow-up. You have to continuously monitor the bleb. It can scar, it can fail. And almost nine, per, nine to ten percent of them will have some sort of complications, especially, you know, some sort of blinding complications. When these procedures were done, it's the safety. The most important thing is the safety. So when you give this kind of information to the patients, you know, you have somebody who have mild to moderate glaucoma patients. You don't want a, a bigger surgery like trabeclectomy to be done on these patients. There are one or two medications they are on. The idea is to stop the medication improve the quality of life, then this is the safest option for them. And, and over three years, we have noticed that we might need more data, but at this time, my, is it a change in practice? I, I won't be doing cataract and trabeclectomy in patients at the same time who have one or two medications. 
it's safer to do a procedures like this. So the, the, um, I want to ask one, one last uh, question, and uh, I apologize because it, it is off topic, and it is this. Have the findings of this study um, influenced your readiness to offer uh, KDB as, as a standalone because KDB is one of, it's not the only, but it's in the minority of mixed procedures that can be, that are codable as a, as a standalone procedure in the absence of cataract surgery. Has it changed your, your opinion about doing KDB surgery for pseudophagic patients um, who require a little bit more but may not actually require a TRAB? Since it doesn't preclude your, your subsequently doing TRAB anyway. That's a very good question, actually. So you're kind of touching uh, two things. One is, can it be done as a standalone sort of fake patients and also in severe glaucoma patients? Now, if you look at the literature, like, you know, there is enough data that's coming in that KDB goniotomy can be done as a standalone. And it's as effective or more effective, actually, like it's more effective in reducing the intraocular pressure com combined with cataract in patients who have severe glaucoma. There are two papers actually published in the last two years, which kind of looked into, it's a multi-center study, which looked into whether this procedure, KDB goniotomy, can be done as a standalone and in severe patients. Yes, it can be done, and it's more effective uh, than uh, combined surgery. The other question that you asked is, when you compare it to cataract alone in these patients, whether it will be as effective, uh, because there is literature. Because their ocular hypertensive treatment study kind of looked into patients who underwent cataract surgery, and they looked into, and then over time, the, the pressures were like two or three millimeters lower than what it was before. That indicates, but like there are multiple literature which came, and even I wrote an editorial on this, which says in patients who have open angle glaucoma, doing cataract surgery alone is not enough. Because we don't have enough data in terms of diurnal intraocular pressure variability and structural and functional stability over time. Yeah. But if it's an angle closure patients, if it's a patient with angle closure who don't have a peripheral anterior sinica and patients who are, you know, like they have angle closure or positional closure, they will be benefited. There are studies from Eagle study which looked into patients who are older patients who, who underwent clear lens extraction and they looked, the pressures were far less in those patients. So, you know, angle closure, I think it's, there is a possibility if there is no PAS. If there is peripheral anterocyanica and then there is increased pressure and the patient is on medications, I would recommend taking out the cataract and doing a goniotomy or goniosynecolysis. It's like a three-step procedure. That's what I would recommend. Hey, this is great stuff. Certainly, I want to thank you for 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 my bringing pleasure. this 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 topic to us, uh, particularly relevant to my practice, but. Uh, um, you know, I'm representative of this segment of the membership, too. Um, and, and most of all, sir, I want to thank you for being so very generous with your time with me today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Catherine Colby is chair of the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Science at the University of Chicago School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. Cyril Doriraj comes to us from Jacksonville, Florida. Ask questions of Dr. Colby, Dr. Doriraj, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. 
be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.